Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Generative AI and the Law, Ethical and Other Implications, examines generative AI technologies like ChatGPT and the implications for education and the use of these technologies in the classroom and throughout the legal profession. Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Oren Gross, moderates the conversation between Professor John Choi, Stephen Helland, the Department Chair of Technology and Data at Fredrickson and Byron, and Judge John Tunheim. This event was recorded on April 12, 2023. A video replay of the entire event is available on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Good afternoon, everyone. At least here in Minnesota, uh, I know many of you are joining from elsewhere, so good morning if you're somewhere where it's earlier, but uh, welcome to Spring Alumni Week. I'm Jamie Snelson, uh, University of Minnesota Law School, class of 1997. Jim Paradic and I co-chair the Academic Engagement Committee of the Law School Board of Advisors. Our committee consists of eight alumni from the board and three faculty members, and we work to foster and develop a faculty and alumni partnership and enhance the academic excellence of the law school. One of the things we do is help arrange CLE events throughout the year that engage our alumni with the law school's esteemed faculty. We're excited to hold this event today and welcome Professor Oren Gross, who will moderate a panel of experts in various areas of the law to explore the implications of generative AI technologies uh, like those we've been reading and hearing so much about. Professor Gross is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and the Irving Younger Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. We're also fortunate to have a fantastic panel that uh, Professor Gross will be moderating. First, the Honorable John Thunheim of the United States District Court for the District of Minnesota. Judge Thunheim has served as a federal district court judge in Minnesota since 1995, including a seven-year term as chief judge from 2015 until 2022. While a student at the University of Minnesota Law School, he served as president of the Minnesota Law Review. Second on our panel, we have University of Minnesota Law Professor Choi, who specializes in tax law, statutory interpretation, and computational analysis of the law, applying natural language processing to study legal issues. Earlier this year, Professor Choi was named a McKnight Land Grant Professor by the University's Office of the Provost. And last but not least, Stephen Helland, a shareholder at Fredrickson and Byron here in Minneapolis. Steve chairs a multidisciplinary group of lawyers at Fredrickson focused on technology and data. He has particular experience and expertise in several areas, including copyright, licensing, software as a service, cloud agreements, social media, privacy, security and breach, big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence. So thank you to Professor Gross and the panel and to all of you for taking time to be with us today. Without further ado, I'll turn it over to Professor Gross. Thank you, Jamie, uh, and thank you uh, all. I see uh, the number already is at 197. I expect us to uh, go completely viral. Uh, I want to take uh, a minute to thank the uh, Academic Engagement Committee of the Board of Advisors and welcome you all to our uh, Spring Alumni Week. There are, we have a lot of activities during this week, and uh, I'm so grateful that uh, you are joining us uh, on this panel. And um, as you know, this is a 
really topical panel. And if you needed any reminder for those of you who uh, browse the New York Times today, uh, you may have come across an article uh, entitled AI is coming for lawyers again. Uh, and the kind of the gist of the article is that new AI technology uh, is going to change the practice of law and some jobs will be eliminated, but it also promises, according to the article, to make lawyers and paralegals more productive and to create new uh, uh, roles. Um, as uh, some of you uh, may know, ChatGPT, which is kind of the name that uh, most are using now when we're talking about some of the new AI, but there's BAR, there's ChatGPT, there are others, we'll may, uh, talk more about those. Um, uh, passed, uh, since its introduction in uh, November of last year, passed the medical licensing bar, passed the bar exam, passed the MPRE, scored uh, 149 on the LSAT and more recently scored 157. It's learning, so it's, uh, it's putting in the hours. Um, and an older version uh, also scored an average of a C plus uh, on four of our own uh, law school exams. And we'll talk more about this, uh, which would have put it on academic probation, but enough to uh, graduate. Um, ChatGPT reached 100 million users uh, on February 1st of this year. And I'm mentioning this because it accomplished in two months what took TikTok, and I realized that if you are at my age, you are probably now running to Google to check what the heck is TikTok. Uh, what took TikTok nine months to uh, uh, achieve and Instagram two and a half years to achieve. And it's estimated that over 30 million, by conservative estimates, 30 million users use ChatGPT uh, daily. And what we've seen since February is, if you will, an AI arms race with Google announcing BARD and uh, 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 Microsoft announcing that ChatGPT will be uh, part of its Bing uh, um, search engine, talk about it being included in uh, the MS Office uh, suit and, and so on and so forth. So clearly we are seeing here new ways of accessing and creating information. And the question is really, are we seeing a revolution? Is this an evolution? What are the ramifications uh, uh, to maybe society in large, but specifically to the way that legal academia, the judges, that lawyers uh, do their, uh, uh, go about their business? And as you heard from Jamie, we really have a distinguished panel to discuss these questions. So starting off, uh, I would like to turn to my colleague, John Choi, and ask him, what exactly is ChatGPT? I'm going to try and prevent getting too technical here, but at a basic level, you start with a model that can predict the next word in a chain of text. So if you say, I went to the blank, you know, what's the next word? Maybe store today, went to the office today. And if you iteratively do that, you can generate whole long strings of text, paragraphs, documents, books even, um, just by predicting what the next word will be based on a huge corpus of blog posts, magazines, books that are basically scraped from the internet. And then the technology layers on top of that to try and moderate the responses, make them more truthful, make them more accurate, 
um, make them more cautious, make them less offensive using what's known as reinforcement learning from human feedback. So it's the pairing of next word prediction with uh, essentially fine tuning using human feedback, humans to tag what is good or bad output. And it turns out that this basic technology is incredibly versatile. It turns out that just by training this basic model, it can code, it can write computer code, it can answer legal questions, it can do math, even though it's not specifically trained on math. There's all sorts of applications that a basic natural language processing model can have, including nowadays they're working on what are known as multimodal models, looking at pictures, interacting with the real world, instructing robots, all sorts of potential applications. So, so you and three of our colleagues published a paper that made a big splash entitled ChatGPT Goes to Law School. Um, and you've since continued to work on implications of AI to the legal profession, and in fact are offering a seminar in this uh, next year. Can you tell us a bit about A, that paper that you published and the kind of work that you're doing right now? So the paper essentially asked whether ChatGPT's performance on law school exams um, how did it compare to the performance of real students? So we blindly graded ChatGPT's exams alongside real student exams, and it performed near the bottom of the class in all four of the classes we tested, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't ridiculously bad. It, it, compared to the student exams, there were some things that it was strong on and some things that it was weak on. It was strong on, uh, you know, formatting, tone, grammar, spelling, all of that, it was bad at deeper critical analysis. And we expect, and we've already started testing GPT-4, which is the latest model, we expect that it will get significantly better. Um, you see this on its performance in the bar exam. It went from the 10th percentile in its last iteration to the 90th percentile in its current iteration. We expect significant performance on law school exams. And um, Professor Schwartz and I at the law school have already written what we call a practical guide for lawyers to use AI in their legal practice. It's still far from being sufficiently reliable that it could substitute for lawyers, but there are a lot of ways that lawyers right now can use AI tools in order to make their practice more efficient and potentially even more accurate. Like you could use it in order to check that the law you're pulling is correct, to point out any flaws in your argumentation. There are a lot of applications of the technology, even for the very elite levels of practice that I think we train students at the law school for. So I, I want to jump for a minute from academia to the bench and then go back to the bar. Judge Chenheim, um, two months ago, a judge in Cartagena, Colombia, became famous worldwide for using ChatGPT in coming to a decision in a case that uh, involved coverage of medical treatment. And last month, an Indian judge used ChatGPT in deciding bail in a murder case. So I know that sounds almost outlandish. Where do you see the use of ChatGPT by judges in the United States deciding cases? It's a great question. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because about 15 years ago, the Ninth Circuit asked if I would come and give them a talk about predicting the legal world in about 30 years. What would judging be like in 30 years? And one of my uh, sort of half put together predictions was that judges would be using artificial intelligence to draft their opinions. And then they would take a look at it and make sure of course that it was accurate. Um, you know, time seems to be coming a little faster than I thought. I mean, I, I think that most 
of the judges who were listening to me that day were shaking their heads and, you know, perhaps thinking I was a fool to even suggest this, that, that someone would be writing their opinions for them. Uh, but, you know, I think we're not too far away. Um, you know, I think the much of what ChatGPT does lacks a good amount of common sense. And so we're not there yet. But, you know, it's a, it's a fine tool for legal research. So that's not too far away from what judges are doing with their opinions. Uh, I think we're fortunate to have good law clerks to do that work for us today. If we didn't have law clerks, then it might be a different story. But I think that, uh, you know, artificial intelligence is going to work its way more deeply into how judges do their work. Don't necessarily think that eventually it'll be writing our opinions for us. I hope not anyway. But at the same time, it can really inform our decision making. And that's probably the best use of AI. So, so you mentioned law clerks, and I assume that once the, vid once the video is out, some of our current students are going to watch it. Um, and so would you accept or even expect your law clerks to use um, AI in their research and even in writing their memo to you, memos to you? I would expect them to use AI in their research. And I think they're already doing that. You know, versions of Westlaw allow you to go beyond just checking for keywords, which is the traditional way of doing research, at least certainly back in the days when I, we were pulling books off the, off the wall. Uh, but I think they're already doing that in AI. I would not expect them to be using AI to draft memos for me, at least at, not at this point in time or at least not without telling me in advance and discussing why. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I do expect uh, research to be thorough. Mm -hmm. And also research has to be done you know, it, with, with all due speed, because we have a lot of cases to go through. You can't spend three weeks researching a bench memo that you're sending to a judge. So AI will help speed up that process. And I think the research part of it is quite valuable. Uh, beyond that, uh, not so much. And actually, just uh, kind of last question, still on the on the bench side, um, one company became quite uh, famous or infamous, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, when they announced they're looking into the possibility of, in a sense, live legal representation in courtroom hearings. They they focused uh, AI to challenge parking and speeding tickets. They said, well, you know, our clients can put an AirPod uh, or headphones in the courtroom and uh, they can type in and get through, uh, through the ear, basically, a legal advice um, through basically an AI. Um, and the argument was, well, that is a wonderful tool for those who cannot afford or maybe do not want to afford professional legal representation. How do you see this if somebody comes to court with, with this in their ear? Well, at least at this point, I'm finding that to be problematic. I mean, I do think that AI presents some important issues for access to justice. We have a lot of individuals who file their own lawsuits uh, and we have a program set up to, to pair them with a lawyer if they really do have a case there and what they have raised. So I think that AI can really help with access to justice uh, as far as actually representing someone in a courtroom, I think that might at this point be going too far and maybe we need some rules on that. Okay. Steve, um, so we 
talked a bit about academia and we'll come back and talk a bit about the bench. And I want to ask you, uh, Judge Anna mentioned Westlaw and Lexis. And in fact, you know, we've been using tools that could be construed as AI. And we know that Westlaw and Lexis have a lot of AI uh, folded in them. So, so those AI tools have uh, really permeated uh, the legal industry, um, you know, whether it is uh, assessing probability and profitability of civil actions, um, uh, assisting in research. We talked about research and writing of briefs. Um, and in fact, we would expect now uh, both attorneys and students to use some of those tools. Is ChatGPT and the like, BARD and the like, are really any different? How do you see those changing, affecting the day-to-day -day work of lawyers in a law firm? Great. So, so thank you for the question. And again, thanks also to the, uh, the alumni committee for bringing this group together for the topic. The thing I'll say here is this is all so new that I think that now is a great time for us to experiment with ideas, to experiment with the technology in limited ways, to talk to each other about what we're finding. One of the things I love about the uh, the paper that John uh, and colleagues put out is that uh, even though it was an early version of ChatGPT3, it gave us a snapshot of one moment in time. And it allowed you to say, as you just did, right, that like grades have gotten better, the tool is improving. What can this tool be used for? I'm extremely interested to know. I'm excited to hear what others are doing. I've begun some limited experiments. Uh, as Judge Chunheim said, am I willing to hand over whole tasks unsupervised to it? Uh, absolutely not today. I think if I, you know, so the, this conversation isn't dated in a matter of months. I'll throw out like one, one general principle, I think, which is that the progress of technology, including uh, generative AI, is nonlinear, right? We've seen it. Uh, we've seen it go great strides very quickly. But let's think of of the Tesla, right? Rewind five or six years ago, everyone thought that today our cars would be totally self-driving, and that uh, that the Tesla I'm not in could be driving around Minneapolis as a taxi with nobody driving it, right? What happened? It plateaued. Okay, the self-driving tech plateaued. How much better is generative AI going to get? I don't know. But I think that that things like the paper that you all presented in this panel allow us to delve further into this. Then there are plenty of unknown unknowns and some known unknowns, right? One known unknown is the legality of the tech itself. We won't go too far down that rabbit hole, right? Uh, but there are now multiple lawsuits challenging the so-called training, right? And I think that that term was chosen by the creators to try to frame it as training as opposed to copying giant volumes of other people's uh, IP. And so, so we will see, but I'm very interested to learn in a constrained and limited iterative way. Sorry, I'm, yes, I'm on mute. Um, so we're clearly uh, in, in kind of early stages. Uh, and again, remember, we are talking about something that started in, in real sense in November 22. So we, we, we are really in the kind of baby steps, um, but, but we know already that, you know, uh, to, to mention just one example that lawyers I'm sure are familiar with, at least one London law firm announced in February that it introduced an AI chatbot uh, to help its lawyers draft contracts, right? So basically uh, put in 
uh, the names of the clients, put in some elements of the transaction, and Harvey, as that chatbot was known, would at least write the initial contract for you. So what we don't know, and while we are saying, Steve, that you know we certainly want a human being in the loop, let me ask you maybe kind of from the uh, um, from the end perspective, do you see a scenario in which clients come to law firms and say, look, we want, we demand that you use chat GPT in order to slash legal expenses? So I do, and I and I I'll say, although it might, you know, it might be challenging to adapt to that, I'll say that clients and the public is right to expect that. Uh, under the ethical rules, lawyers have an ethical obligation, and even just rules aside as a matter of philosophy and ethics, right? Uh, yes, being a lawyer pays my rent, but that's not why the law exists. The law exists as a method of dispute resolution and interactions with society. And when we can make that more efficient, economical, and expand access to justice, like, you know, we, we must do that. And uh, if it's driven by my clients, uh, as I expect it will be, as it might be driven by uh, law students, right? Uh, if, if it can drive down efficiency or some classes could be taught more economically. You know, one of the, uh, I'll offer a, a piggyback thought, perhaps for Judge Thunheim, but for the whole panel, which is that you know, our current system of justice is, uh, for better and worse, oftentimes worse, metered or measured by the fact that access to lawyers is expensive. And one of the things that I think will be interesting to see is if a high quality tool becomes available, you know, will we start to see a wave of pro se lawsuits? It's actually pretty good. Maybe that is good for access to justice. However, I could also see a tidal wave of, of pro se claims, and our current systems are just not designed to deal with that. We'll have to adapt. And actually, one of the questions that I wanted to come back later, and, and, and I'll just cabin this, I'll mention this now, is to some extent, if a lawyer now doesn't use research tools that are available, Lexis, Westlaw, there might be issues of professional conduct. Um, are we getting to the point where not using ChatGPT will be one of those? But Steve, before before I kind of can I piggyback I on that? So I'll say yeah. to answer you. So on ChatGPT, I think we're not there yet. Uh, right. We're not there yet, but I think we might be uh, as a number of legal vendors, you know, um, uh, begin to offer specialized tools. And I think as John suggested earlier, right, you know, right now the tool is a generalized tool pulled off of sources of. We're not really clear on what the sources were, but it's apparently a wide body of sources. Right. As specialized legal vendors get higher quality training databases, I expect to see the tool improve. I'm excited about that. That leads to, I think, we have one major issue or concern and why I hope government will get a seat at the table and the Federal Trade Commission has su suggested it expects a seat at the table right. is the lack of transparency into the training data, right? That's a real concern. Uh, and, and I think that uh, OpenAI and others have been intentionally evasive. So I look forward to, to movement and improvement on that front. And things like that will help drive what you say, both the quality of the tools and my willingness to increase my reliance with the same time always, uh, as Judge Chuhain said, uh, human review and validation for quality uh, on the end product. So actually, I want to take this point, John, and come back to you. Um... Because one of the dangers, ethical and otherwise, ChatGPT, and again, BARD, and all of the, give us a certain 
certain answer, right? There is uh, maybe an overconfidence in what we get. Um, we know that some of the answers might be wrong. We hope that that uh, wrong answer uh, instance is going down as it is now part of, or has access to the internet. But I want to ask you about uh, built-in biases, in a sense, in the algorithms uh, that, that lead to such um, um, applications and, and tools as ChatGPT. It's a really interesting question. I mean, first of all, on general reliability, um, you know, piggybacking off what Stephen mentioned, uh, okay. there are companies now that already have tools out there that will improve the reliability of GPT type models by extracting relevant text, say finding a case, maybe using a conventional search that a law associate might use, and then feeding that case to the model. And in that way, you can significantly improve the reliability of the model, maybe even to human or beyond human levels. And there's a question like if empirically, GPT says a correct summarization of the law uh, with higher probability than a human would, should we still have the human? Does the human play a role? And maybe, maybe the human does. Maybe, you know, for general AI alignment purposes, we want always to have a human in the loop. We never want to have a machine operating on its own, but that's a question. And then um, on your more specific question. So um, actually, sorry, could you repeat that, Arn? Yeah, sure. The, the, the bias that basically is um, inherent or involved or baked into, if you will, ChatGPT. And again, Steve mentioned the transparency. It's non transparency, right? We have a black box. We don't know what's the input, and that obviously affects the output. Yeah, so there's a significant literature, especially in computer science, on how these models can be biased. So, for example, um, Without the second step that I mentioned, without the reinforcement learning to make the model less offensive, it is well known that because the source data contains many biases, the eventual model will contain many biases. So for example, like the word homemaker will be more associated with women than with men, in part because the training source data associate a woman with the term homemaker more than with men. There are all sorts of gender biases, racial biases. A lot of the data are scraped from the internet. As you can imagine, there are a lot of biases on internet chat forums, which is where a lot of the data come from. That said, these biases are mitigated to a significant extent by the fine tuning that OpenAI does. And so it's not known because they are so opaque the extent to which these biases actually still occur in the ultimate model. And you can almost ask on a psychological level, if you talk to ChatGPT, it's very hard to get it to say something offensive. But is that because it's filtering, it's censoring its ultimate responses to you? And you know, subconsciously, deep in the neural network, it still has the biases? Or is it because they've successfully managed to mitigate biases? We don't know the answer to that question. And so there are a lot of important explainability issues that we would want to get to the bottom of before we, for example, allow uh, OpenAI to create a robot judge. Um, especially in the decision-making side of things, we would want to be very confident that there's no bias. Maybe for legal research, if you get the right answer to a specific legal question, and you know, is there likely to be a lot of legal bias, sorry, gender bias in an interpretation of tax law, maybe that's not as big of an issue, but for some of these downstream applications, we would really want to make sure that bias is addressed. Great. Um, Judge, I want to come back to you because among other things, you've also uh, been an adjunct teacher uh, in the alma mater in, at the U. 
So I, I want to kind of start with you, but also throw it both to John and to Steve. Um, all law schools, um, ours as well, are now struggling, if you will, between two opposite poles. On the one hand, we are worried about unchecked cheating uh, on exams, on papers. Uh, we know already that students are using, we know that students in high schools are using, and these will be the feeders to the student in colleges and then uh, uh, to law students. Um, we also fear a decline in critical thinking, right? So we are training from day one, we're kind of drilling in, we'll teach you think like a lawyer, we'll teach you write like a lawyer, and ChatGPT seems to potentially undermine this. On the other hand, we see also, if you will, kind of enthusiasm about what this new tool can usher in as far as options in, uh, in legal education. Any thoughts on that? Because, and, and I'm saying it's really open-ended because nobody really knows. It, it is really a good question and a very difficult one to address because it's coming and it's coming fast uh, uh, to legal education. You know, one solution would be to go back to the way we used to do it, which is sit in a timed exam room with a blue book and write uh, without any computers. That probably is not going to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm concerned that perhaps writing is a lost art now by hand anyway. Uh, but I mean, it, it is a real concern and obviously rules are very important here and rules that students must follow. You know, certainly in the lawyer profession, uh, rules have not caught up to AI. And, you know, uh, all kinds of questions that fall under our current rules as to whether AI is, is, is possible. Is it unauthorized practice of law? You know, how do you avoid violating client confidentiality uh, with a system where you don't know where all this information is going to? So, I mean, I think in, in, in legal education, it has a lot of really good applications for learning how to research well and research thoroughly and, and understand the subject that you are dealing with. But in terms of testing and, and really understanding where it goes from there, there's a lot of work to be done. I think uh, rules are the answer and you know, law students are, are supposed to follow rules right. and there are rules that they have to follow when they're lawyers. So learning early on right. the need to follow carefully the rules is probably the best answer I can give you right now. Which, which of course raises a very, uh, important and very timely question, again, for all law schools. Um, you mentioned rules, so we have rules of professional responsibility and ethics. We have student codes of conduct. We also know that they don't keep up, right, with Silicon Valley's, you know, move fast and then, you know, issue the patches. Um, and one of the questions, right, are that, that we're facing now is, can we actually trust for example, the uh, student code of conduct. In the good old days, you could say, well, you know, cheating was always a possibility, but it was hard. It was difficult. Um, and code of conduct was enough to catch, you know, there would be a small number of students who do, of course, not in Minnesota. Uh, codes of conduct will deal with that. What do you do when you have a tool that is A, so easy, 
so accessible, and at the same time, really not detectable, right? We know that there are companies that are working on detection, but so far, they're not really good at that, right? So, you know, how, how do we deal with this question? Steve, do you have any um, insights that we can uh, think about? Well, so so maybe I'll offer one or two comments, uh, which is first again, this goes back to the, the paper that John and colleagues published, which I appreciated because uh, you were explicit about calling for organizations to put forward rules and address this. So as part of my prep for this conversation, right, I talked to a bunch of clients, I talked to friends, I talked to teachers, I talked to my daughter who's a teenage student. And, uh, and just to affirm what you said, uh, Professor Gross, is that right? It's out there, right? It's out there and everyone is doing it. Everyone is using it, even if they're not saying so uh, out loud uh, in business, academia, uh, et cetera. So that's number one. And I certainly won't, uh, I'm not gonna offer how a university should deal with it other than to say that uh, ignoring it seems, it, it strikes me if I were a current student uh, as a little bit unfair, right? Do I assume that it is not allowed, but knowing that my some of my fellow students are going to be using it, that seems to put me at a disadvantage. Uh, I think that, uh, so again, don't know what the answer is. Uh, others closer to it will. You're right, maybe as Judge Chutam said, some sort of either assignment or testing that makes cheating more difficult, whether it's because it's such a specialized assignment that chat GPT can't quite do it yet, or you can go the other direction, right? The other direction, which again, I think that the paper addresses is encouraging students to use the tool effectively. Maybe you say, students, I want a paper or I want something, and you're allowed to use ChatGPT, and I will grade the results knowing that you've reviewed it, and it's your job to catch these so-called hallucinations uh, and see what happens. But ignoring it, I think, is a bad, is a bad path. And I actually want to since we're talking here about element of cheating, you know, uh, the other, if you will, aspect of that is plagiarism, right? So you write a paper, uh, and obviously if you lift your paper from the work of somebody else, it's plagiarism. And Steve, one of the things that you do is IP and specifically copyright. And um, several journals already came out. So most famously the journal Science came out and banned GP chat GPT. Um, and it stated, and I want to quote, an AI program cannot be an author. A violation of these policies will constitute scientific misconduct, no different from altered images or plagiarism of existing works. If I'm using ChatGPT to write a paper, and actually there have already been uh, some uh, uh, legal papers written, published uh, uh, articles that explicitly said this was done using ChatGPT. Who's the author? Who has IP rights in this? Sure. So I'll I'll just say I love the question, and that's part of why I love this panel, right? Because we have the judiciary, you have me for business private practice, and you've got academia. Uh, academia prizes originality and authenticity of authorship, right? And people get expelled if they don't uh, give quotes uh, and proper attribution. Whereas conversely, right? I, when I provide a software license agreement or a confidentiality agreement to a client, my client, so long as it does the job, they hope I use previous work or the work of a colleague that gets them to that endpoint. Uh, and so, you know, attribution and what I'll call authenticity of authorship 
is much less significant in what I'll call the practice of law. Now, in your scenario, right, I my my initial reaction is I would certainly hope that if it was repeating, right, that that part of the part of a good check and balance is to have a process where you're seeing, uh, you know, like I now run articles through plagiarism checkers, right, to make sure I'm not copying what's out there. But you raise a larger uh, issue of what does authenticity mean now, and what do we expect by authenticity? So if I produce an article but it was 80% drafted by uh, an AI tool, should I disclose that? If I tweaked it, how much do I need to tweak? And how do we feel in different contexts, right? Uh, it might be one thing for a confidentiality agreement or a software license where we maybe don't care so much. Maybe we care much more for a student essay. And then what about, right, you know, a letter I write to my wife? Uh, uh, so, or my profile in an online environment, right? Um, these are questions that that we are just starting to ask, and I won't propose an answer other than to say they're really good questions of authenticity. Today, if I use a calculator to do math, you probably don't think I'm inauthentic because I used a calculator to do the math. Do you think I'm inauthentic if I use Chat GPT to do my big first draft? And, and clearly, I would say uh, most high school students have lost any ability to do the long division. And the question is whether it's good or not. Uh, John, you, you mentioned earlier kind of the um, um, prognostic that you had to give, you know, for the legal profession of the bench 30 years down the line. So I'm not going to ask you 30 years down the line, but rather, you know, six months or a year down the line. Um, and, I, and I want to direct this then to both to John and to Steve. How should we assess this from what we're seeing now? Are we seeing now a, a revolutionary moment, a technological disruption, uh, or do we see something that will have a more limited, more mundane effect on the way in which we lawyers and we judges and we academics do law akin to whether it is the internet, whether it is the Google search engine, whether it is Westlaw and Lexis? How should we think about what we see now? Well, I think you, we, we know that lawyers are inherently cautious about moving too fast into something entirely new. So I really think this is more evolutionary than it is revolutionary. It might be revolutionary at a certain point in time when some of our young people become uh, leaders of the bar. But I do think that uh, we have to move somewhat cautiously and slowly into this process there are great advantages of AI, and we need to maximize the, the advantages of, of AI, particularly in areas where huge costs are involved in, in handling cases that can be minimized by the use of, of AI. But at the same time, we need to have very precise rules in place so that we all know what the game plan is going forward. And judges need to trust what lawyers are giving them, trust that it's the, the product of, of their, their mind and their training and their competence and their legal experience, as opposed to something coming from, as you say, a black box and we don't know where, what's being scraped in order to get the information there. So uh, lots of questions to be answered, but I, I do think that we're, it's an evolutionary phase. And we probably don't know the answers for maybe 10, 12 years down the way. 
Steve, you said we don't know what we don't know, but uh, if I had to, uh, if, if I asked you the same question, revolution, evolution, where are we? Sure, Rand, of course, I'm gonna give you a fuzzy, hedgy, lawyerly answer, uh, but I still, I still love the mm -hmm. question. So uh, I'll say that, so I'm really excited about the opportunities. Uh, I'm just extreme because of all the efficiencies, access, you know, we've talked about the quality of the output, Part of what is so amazing, right, about the recent um, uh, chat tools is the ease of input, right? Uh, when people like talk about why Google or the iPhone were revolutions and pivot points, it's not necessarily that the tech was new, is that the interface was so easily usable. There's an article in The Atlantic in, I think, February or January about the adoption of new tech, right? And it's not just the invention that has to be great, but it has to be the uh, ease of use and adoption. So, so ChatGPT has such a great interface that perhaps a layperson can say, I would like a will, I have two children, right, et cetera. So that's so huge potential, uh, but obviously we're not there yet on validation. I also do need to say this, um, that there is a chance that the conversation we're having right now, which I'm thrilled to be a part of, will be the like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? That that there's the larger piece of this. I think AI safety, uh, I'm not, I'm certainly not a catastrophizer, but that's a real issue uh, in my opinion that deserves serious attention on, on AI safety. And let's remember that OpenAI, the organization right, that has put out ChatGPT actually began as a not-for-profit whose governing, uh, whose primary purpose was to ensure the safe and equitable uh, diffusion of artificial intelligence. Uh, I think that there's a chance that things could go, again, a very small chance that things could go badly wrong. Uh, not necessarily the tool itself, I'm I'm less persuaded by that, but more that bad actors, be they individuals, organizations, uh, or nations, could get a hold of this technology to do whether it's uh, advanced hacking and programming or things like flooding our democracy with uh, terrible information or misinformation that now will become so easy to produce at scale. So uh, there are so many unknowns, unknowns, whether they're the plateaus, the legal model of the technology, and these bad scenarios that could be total blockers. But overall, I'm by default an optimist, and I love the upsides. So I'm excited to experiment and find good use cases where we can safely use uh, and share that. John, let me ask you this uh, as the final question. And, and maybe you can inject a bit more optimism. I'm, I'm starting to feel queasy about this Titanic business. Um, what would be the one or two main things that we as lawyers should hope to see in chat GPT 5, 6, 7, 8, and down the line? I think the primary improvements you would hope for would be improved reliability, and improved critical reasoning. So one of the things that GPT models are good at right now is summarizing, but they're not very good at critical analysis in the way that you would expect a law student or lawyer to be. I think they'll get markedly better at that and they'll become more reliable. But in fact, I think what we should really hope for is for legal tech companies to take these basic models and then apply, um, yeah, apply fine tuning or pair the models with extractive retrieval models so that they pull out the relevant sources. And that would also significantly 
increase the reliability. And we're already seeing that. So, you know, there's a company called Case Text, there's Harvey AI, which you already mentioned, and they are reporting really high reliability um, for the kinds of tasks that they're assigning to these AIs, which are not, you know, it's not something extremely, you're not writing a memo start to finish, you're not writing a litigation brief start to finish, but producing a first draft of a document, answering research questions, they can be quite good at those tasks. And, and overall, I think these are the kinds of tasks, just conceptually, that we think of as like associate tasks. So when you're a junior associate, you draft the first draft of the contract, or you produce, um, you know, an initial legal memo on a very small issue. And then what do the folks higher up? What do the Stevens of the world do? They exercise their judgment. They act as editors. Those are tasks that I think are very difficult for AI to perform under our current paradigm. And so if you're worried about your job as a lawyer, you know, there's going to be potentially more people acting as partners, potentially fewer people acting as junior associates, doing some of the tasks that, frankly, some people don't love doing anyway, and um, exercising the judgment, the the discretion, the the true lawyerly skills that we've always really relied upon and valued. So I, I assume we all remember the good old days where you had two documents that you had to compare and you set as a first year associate and you looked left and you looked right and, and then came redlining and made this completely redundant. To some extent, John, if I hear you correctly, what we're gonna see is in a sense leveling up. Everybody will, JGPT and the like will be the, the floor and we'll need the lawyers to do the more and more sophisticated work. Exactly. That, that, that is a, a positive way to uh, end. So we have um, about 15 minutes for, for Q&A. Uh, and I see already uh, five questions that we have. Jim, uh, why don't you take it? But before we do this, um, I really want to thank uh, uh, Judge Zunheim, Steve, and John for joining us. This was uh, uh, fantastic, and I'm sure we'll have many more of these. Jim, take it away. Thanks, Professor. Um, first question we have is uh, about AI safety, which you were talking about, Steve. Uh, I'm an in-house attorney. I have a general question about confidentiality. What is truly confidential when you enter the prompt? Some practices I've seen say, quote, just be careful what you type in the query or be smart about what you submit uh, or don't submit confidential information on a public bot like this to that, those kind of things. Isn't the AI, quote, smart enough to understand where the query is coming from? How truly confidential is what our clients submitting. And in the end, isn't the AI learning from your query and the output it delivers? So I don't, I, Steve, do you have any thoughts about that? So, so it's a great question and a super important one. I think we, we've touched on confidentiality. Again, uh, John and colleagues' paper uh, referenced confidentiality. And this is where I'll, I'm going to both, so here's what we know, the known known. Uh, we know that the terms and conditions, if you actually read them, which I've done, uh, do not promise confidentiality. And we also uh, know that it is a black box. And so if you, if you ask me, what do I know for sure? I know that I cannot confidently say that anything I type into the tool is confidential. Uh, and there was actually, I think it was Samsung, where like within the past two weeks, right? Uh, someone uh, at the firm uh, uploaded, I guess, an audio recording or a transcript of a board of directors meeting and said, please produce minutes from this. And it might have done a pretty good job, but the problem is, right, there was a concern that there was a confidentiality breach. Many other permutations of that. 
So, so the answer is right. We cannot rely on that for confidentiality. Here, I'll just tell you now at, at taking like a risk and putting myself out there, like what I do. So I've now, when I've been experimenting, like so, for example, I have uploaded uh, some software licenses and some um, confidentiality agreements, uh, and I've asked ChatGPT to say, "What don't you like about this document? How could this document become like more?" pro one side or pro the other side. But I made sure that I deleted all uh, identifying information from that. Now I'm at a law firm, so we got a lot of clients. So it's e maybe easier for me to do that. For the questioner at an in-house firm, right? Um, I realized that, that that is more tricky. So I should stop by saying, uh, great question. We do not have enough information yet because of the annoying black box to answer with certainty. And I hope regulators help us on this because it's an immediate pressing question that we deserve an answer to. Can I also mention confidentiality is an especially large concern because the inputs that you provide and the, the outputs that are provided uh, may be included in future training data. So, you know, there's a known issue with some of these models where they will spit out this exact same language or for art, for example, the exact same image that is already in the training set. Once your data are in the training set, it's possible that other folks will be able to attack the GPT model to get your data out of it. And it's not well understood how to prevent that from happening. So at the moment, I would strongly suggest not putting confidential information into GPT, because even if OpenAI wanted to prevent that information from being shared, by including it in the training set, they may not be able to. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, another question. Um, I don't know the answer to this. I wonder if anybody in the panel does. Has a test been established for when AI becomes a constitutional person? Or is that a little premature at this point? We can see it going in that direction, but does anybody know if that kind of legal definition has been, ever been applied to AI? I've never heard it, but I'll offer a tangent comment, which is um, as just a person, right? And so the, here's a standard disclaimer. This is Steve Helland, not my firm, uh, anything like that. Um, the idea that for training, uh, these systems have kind of taken or copied or scraped the collective work of millions of other people without attribution. And as far as I can tell so far, without payment, um, I'm troubled by that. Uh, and so I'll just put, I don't know what the resolution is. People reference the Google Books case where Google began scanning millions of books. And although that was found to be a fair use, that was within certain parameters. And actually Google pays hundreds of millions of dollars in licensing fees, right? It does it some in the US to authors, some in Europe. So uh, I'll just say whether it's an, an entity itself, don't know, but I think it has taken from others and there has not been appropriate uh, attribution, payment or recognition of those others to my mind. And by the way, on that tangent, it is known um, there's been empirical work suggesting that the performance of the model would not significantly decrease if they only used truly open source training data. So they're potentially treading on people's rights, maybe treading on their legal entitlements. And for what? Mm -hmm. I can see a case coming to the courts before too long on this issue. For sure, yeah. Uh, this is a question maybe for uh, John and Oren. Um, uh, this is responding to the kind of the general con uh, 
conversation around cheating in law schools and educational environments. Uh, the questioner says, this seems to be similar to the common question about how education should mirror the real world. Education is sometimes unrealistic, for example, in not permitting group work, which is the basis for much effort in the business world. And any thoughts on that, uh, Professor Choi or Gross? Well, so I was on another panel last week with a broader set of educators, you know, some from other disciplines like English, philosophy. And in those fields, I could see more justification for detaching yourself from the real world. In a professional school, I do think there is an onus for law professors to educate students to be lawyers and to try and craft the curriculums so that you build actual useful skills. The question is, you know, to what extent are we doing a karate kid kind of thing where we're making them, you know, wax the car, wax the car, and then it turns out you're really good at karate. So maybe we're making them use pen and paper, and then it turns out you're really good at crafting legal arguments. I don't know to what extent that's true. I'm dubious of those kinds of um, claims because, you know, to some extent, maybe law professors just don't want to adapt and rewrite their course syllabi. Um, but you could see the case being made that you need to learn how to write before you learn how to edit. And I would say that, that to me, what law school needs to do, I mean, as John said, law school is both a grad school, but it's also a professional school. And we need to make sure that those that graduate from any law school have the um, set of skills that will make them successful in the real world. If I were to teach now and say, you know, don't touch Westlaw, don't touch Lexus, I, I'm not basically educating my students for the world out there. ChatGPT, Bard are out there. This is going to be part of their legal reality. And to ignore this in the education is foolhardy. Now, there is a difference between that and saying, well, then just uh, uh, cabin your mind for three years have ChatGPT do all your work and then come and get a diploma. That won't do. Uh, so we need to find, and I think that all law schools are trying now to find that point, right, on the spectrum, that point of equilibrium between those opposing to, to, to allow them to use ChatGPT in ways that enhance legal education, that enhance the work that they're going to do out, out there as lawyers, but without undermining the building blocks of thinking like a lawyer, writing like a lawyer, and so on and so forth. Great. Um, I have a question, uh, Your Honor. Uh, will ChatGPT ever be able to replace a trial judge in evaluating the veracity of a witness, or be able to contemplate and apply concepts such as mercy and justice, or be able to evaluate a specific uh, defendant for sentencing? Um, any I, I, That might be a rhetorical question, but do you have any reaction to it? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the clear answer is no, but it's, it's a qualified answer because, uh, you know, artificial intelligence can help us make good decisions, but ultimately the decision is up to the judge applying their experience and their knowledge and their observational powers and comparison powers to other cases. A good example now is we have enormous quantities of sentencing data from throughout the country with similarly situated defendants that we can consult if we want to in helping us uh, achieve at a reasonable sentence. You know, we have sentencing guidelines that have a lot of AI built into them as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we have um, 
you know, a, a bail evaluation process, uh, detention or, or bail evaluation process that does use algorithms to try to predict whether someone is a danger to society or not. Now, all, all of that can be used and, and is used by judges, some more than others, but it also is just simply a help. Ultimately, the judge makes the decision. I think that likely, at least for the foreseeable future, will always be the case. We're not going to turn this over, this, the decision-making process over to artificial intelligence, but we can and should be effectively using data to help us make better decisions so we don't make mistakes. Great. And I might, I might add, Jim, uh, these companies that are now analyzing all of our decisions and, and offering predictions to lawyers for you know, probably good sums of money, uh, I've examined what they've compiled on me, and it's very interesting, you know, and I've, you know, I can point out where areas where I think they are really, really wrong, and other areas where they probably have a good point. So uh, there's that, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Oren, um, we have a number of other questions, but I know we're kind of running to the end of this, so I'll just defer to you about how you want to wrap things up. So uh, I think we have a hot break at one o'clock. Um, so maybe picking up um, one or two questions, Jim, uh, the others are available. We can, uh, you know, print them out and share or what have you, but let's just pick one or two. Well, the, this is one that I had actually had in my mind throughout this, so I'll ask it. Uh, about lawyer training, if we do not have associates learning judgment through developing first drafts, editing Dis editing, discovery, et cetera, how will we develop partners with good judgment needed for final review? I, I do personally see that as a big immediate risk of the emergence of AI. And since all of you work with younger lawyers, I'm wondering what your response is to that concern. Uh, so I'll start as a part. So it's a, it's a great concern. Uh, and of course, we don't have the answers yet. But the way that that I've recently trained associates, right, is they on diligence or other tasks read a large volume of documents where their role is limited. Sometimes it's summarizing, sometimes it's limited edits, it's edits under my supervision. And so if uh, efficiency tools remove those opportunities, we're going to have to find something new. So I uh, appreciate the question, and that's why I appreciate these dialogues to see what we can figure out, because it, it's a great question. Well, I mean, why couldn't you just ask associates to do the direct task? So if a partner is going to read a contract and make edits, you could ask an associate to read a contract produced by ChatGPT and make edits, and then the partner could also read it and make a further round of edits and you know provide corrections if necessary. Um, and this is a version of the Karate Kid question, whether you need to wax the car before you like learn the karate. But I remember a historical justification when I was at the law firm I worked at for um, having associates do discovery was it would help you learn about the law. I was always very skeptical that you were learning a lot about the law by reading reams and reams of documents. Um, and you know, like you know, you do the Karate Kid thing, as as Pablo Arondo says, uh, for like a couple of weeks. You don't do it for three years, which is how long some folks are forced to do discovery or discovery. But of course, John, it builds character. Yes, of course. <laughs> Judge, did you have any thoughts about that? With you seeing, because you work, I know, with new recently graduated law students a lot. Um, do you have any concerns about their skill set? if they're um, too much dependence on AI? 
Well, well, definitely. There's no question about that. You would worry about that if they came without the, the kind of in-depth analysis that law school trains them to do, because I rely heavily on that, uh, and particularly their analysis of research. So that's a concern. I mean, I think law school needs to train, you know, top-notch young lawyers who can perform that kind of analysis and help me make the right decisions. So it's a concern. Is that all we have time for, Oren? Should we wrap it up? Uh, Katie, Lizzie, you, uh, you're the, uh, I'm, I'm happy to continue, but uh, I think we have a one o'clock. Uh, and by the way, this is a good opportunity to thank both Katie and Lizzie, without whom that panel could not have uh, run as smoothly as it does. Um, I think, yes, the, I actually, yes, I join you. Um, I think, um, seeing no other comment, I think we do need to cut it at one. Uh, the recording will be made available. I, I, I apologize. I know there a good sign of a good panel is that we could not run through all the questions that were asked. Um, I, I can tell you that uh, you can certainly, uh, those who asked and did not get an answer, can send uh, their questions to Professor Cho. You see how I immediately volunteer you, John, rather than to me. Uh, and we can uh, disseminate them and try and get uh, answers to you. But I want once again to uh, uh, thank everybody who took the time to join us and uh, thank our wonderful panel for a stimulating and invigorating discussion. Thank you all. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.